1: Hey guys, welcome to episode 128 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay, and I'm John. So we hope at this point you aren't getting sick of us because what we've This is our third episode in a week.
2: Yeah, I mean, we've been rapid fire so.
1: Yes, very exciting. After not recording for 3 weeks, it's so nice to be behind the mic again and we're loving the feedback and the last episodes we did were amazing. Everyone's loving like you were saying Shag, which I can't I can't well, I was like, do I even say this word out loud? But they th- thought it was funny. Yeah.
2: I think what people liked was that I was probably sick and delusional. So that's <laughs> what happened.
1: Yes, many people said blame it on the medicine job. Yes,
2: and I absolutely will.
1: <laughs> so um I think we did all the housekeeping stuff on the last episode and of course we'll be thanking all of our new patrons on Patreon at the end of this episode. So are you just Ready to get right into it? Yeah, let's do it. The crime I will be telling you about today is the disappearance of a 65-year-old woman. That on the surface, well, in our line of work at least, it seems to be your run-of-the-mill adult disappearance. But shortly into the investigation, the detectives realized that it was only the tip of the iceberg. Their mother's disappearance triggered something intense among her three adult children. The disappearance unearthed a family secret long buried by the sands of time. And just maybe it would reveal who was responsible for her disappearance.
0: Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not?
1: Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Marilyn Kinnanen had a very strict schedule for a reason that we'll learn about later. Marilyn had not been in control of any aspect of her life. But now, as a single woman with grown children, she could set the pace of her own life, and it was something that she really enjoyed doing. She had a typical morning routine from which she never wavered, followed by her going to work as a secretary at a local aviation firm where she lived in Orlando, Florida. She was always on time, and she rarely missed work, and that was because she enjoyed her job and the company she kept there. She loved her colleagues who had become her friends over the years. Her children were all in stable, happy places in their lives, and of this she was very proud. Her oldest daughter, but middle child Cheryl, Lived near her and was in a happy marriage and a mother to three lovely children. Marilyn rejoiced in her role as their grandmother and considered herself to be lucky to be able to spend so much time with her daughter and grandchildren. Her oldest child and only son, Ricky Jr., of course named after his father, Richard Cananan, who had been married to Marilyn for just about 25 years when he walked out on them 15 years earlier. Ricky Jr. had gone through a divorce himself, but was in good spirits because he was living with his sister, Marilyn's youngest child, Stacy, and Stacy's partner, Susan. Ricky Jr. and Stacy had just spent a lot of time landscaping her backyard, and it had come out amazing. And they had had so much fun doing it that they decided to start their own landscaping company With Cheryl's husband, Chris. And they called this landscaping company Green Acres.
2: That's a nice company name. I like that. You approve of the name? I approve of it. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I one of the things that irritate me most is when you're driving around a neighborhood, you know, it could be upscale, whatever, it doesn't matter. You're driving around a neighborhood, and you see, like, all of the landscaper, like, trailers and trucks and stuff with all your equipment. And the ones that have the corniest names where it's just, like, C&L landscaping. And it's like, all right, cool.
1: So you don't like corny, and you don't like initials.
2: Yeah, like, when it's just, like, like all initial or, like, all corny, it's stupid. Like, this one's kind of cool. Like, you know.
1: Green Acres. Green Acres. Yeah, it's It's nice. cool.
2: It sounds like you're going to bring wonderful, you know, presentation to my house.
1: Yeah, and... <laughs> And Ricky Jr. has another company, and it's Emerald something. I'm forgetting right now. I know it'll come up later in the episode, but it's a, he's continuing with the green theme, and I, I like love it. it. I love a good theme.
2: Me too.
1: So, and this is nice. I think all the kids are kind of in business together, and right now it's nice. But you know, sometimes working with family can be very complicated. So the fact they were so eager to get into business together might speak to the fact that they're having a good relationship right now. I agree. But it can get messy. So things couldn't have been more perfect for Marilyn. She was happy. All of her kids' lives were headed in a positive direction. So, of course, this is when things go all wrong. On September 12th of 2003, Marilyn's employer grew concerned when she didn't show up for work. She was always on time. And if, on a rare occasion, she would be out, she would always call. But this Friday was different than any other normal day or even any other normal Friday. It was Maryland's last day of work before she was supposed to have a week-long vacation. So she wouldn't miss work on the day before her vacation unless something was wrong. Like, she had planned a whole week trip to Boston. Okay. So her going missing before this trip, and she hated missing work. So she would never just not show up the Friday before like her last day of work.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that's kind of out of character. You right. Know?
1: Over the years, the colleagues in that office had grown very close. They knew Marilyn's children and they were concerned. First, they called Marilyn's oldest um, child, Ricky, to see maybe if there might have been a misunderstanding if she was away or with one of them. And they were thinking kind of at this time that the worst case scenario was maybe she had gotten into a car accident or maybe fell at home. So that was their worst case scenario. And this is a true crime podcast. So we know that's not what happened or else we wouldn't be talking about it. So Ricky is going to say he doesn't know where she was, but he did tell the employer that he was going to contact all of his siblings. Her employer told him that they were going to put in a wellness call check to the police and Ricky at this point is going to call his sister Cheryl when he learns about his mother's disappearance and of course he's living with Stacy so he just tells her something's up basically and they're all going to kind of meet at their mother's house where they wait for police and this is pretty easy for Stacy and Ricky because they live only a few blocks from their mother. So once they all assemble there, the children ask each other if either had seen their mother, but none of them had. They wanted to wait until the police got there to go inside the house, just in case something was wrong. Or they didn't want to see something, you know, wrong with their mother, if God forbid that's what happened.
2: I mean, that's a good call, too. And You know, let's say there is a crime scene in there. It's good preservation, you know. You know, you don't want to get your fingerprints everywhere and, you know, and contaminate the area. So good preservation and... You know, it's it's a good idea on, on, on all their behalfs.
1: Yeah, I think it's really forward thinking, and we commend them on that investigation-wise. So they had, you know, peeked in the windows, of course, to see if, like, their mother was in distress on the floor anywhere, but they couldn't see anything. So as they waited for the police, the siblings, as most siblings can, gave each other knowing looks. If what they thought happened, happened... They were in trouble. When Ricky Jr. first calls his sister Cheryl, he says to her, not mom's missing, but the monster's back.
2: The monster's back.
1: The monster's back.
2: Very odd way of describing something or someone.
1: Yes. It's almost like an it when Mike calls all the guys and they're like, he's like, you got to come back to Derry. It's like the monster's back.
2: You know what? (laughs) This might be, uh, maybe have nothing to do with it at all. But they might be referring to their father, maybe. Yeah. You know, that makes sense. You know, because he left them, so.
1: He left them, but he left them 15 years ago. Yeah, well, sometimes
2: some scars don't heal, you know.
1: No, and I think that's really, that statement kind of summarizes this whole case, is that some scars don't heal. Yeah. And that was a really good guess, because that is who they're referring to. Yeah. Their father. And... Although they all suspected that this had something to do with their father, they didn't have the courage to speak the words out loud. Not yet. So once the police got there and they went inside, they found some bad signs. There appeared to be missing items from the house that should have been there. She had a good amount of clothing items, some favorite pieces that she wore all the time, and they weren't there. Other personal items were also missing, as was her work ID, which she was wearing the last time she was seen by her co-workers. As the police asked the children routine questions about their mother, they noticed that something was off about them. They seemed antsy, and they were constantly looking at each other, basically the type of bizarre behavior that would make a police detective think you were guilty, or you were hiding something. And just as the detective was about to ask the kids what was going on, Ricky Jr. lost it. It was him, he said. I know it was. He's back. And, you know, Cheryl would later testify, because there is a trial here in this case, that when her brother Ricky Jr. called her and said the monster's back, that her blood like immediately ran cold. And she got the chills because she felt like this was true as well. Now, the women obviously did not want to talk about whatever Ricky had given up and they tried to quiet him down in front of the detectives, but the detectives were not going to have it. They wanted to know what was going on and just what the family had been leaving out at this point. Now, I know I'm going to put a trigger warning in the beginning, uh, like in the show notes of this episode, but um, for this portion of the show... We're going to be talking about. Well, I'm going to be describing some pretty horrific domestic violence situations, child abuse, and uh, child sexual abuse. So, if that's something that you know you don't want to hear, then this is kind of where it's going to begin. So, I just like giving that to our audience. Now, over the next few and several interviews, this story develops, but for the sake of the podcast. I'm just going to do it all in one shot, but just know all of this information. It took days for the detectives to kind of get out of the three siblings. And it was very emotional. And as you can imagine, everyone deals with this trauma differently. So like, like Ricky talked about it. Cheryl's still in this kind of state of denial about what truly happened to her and what happened to her siblings. And, um, Stacy, the youngest, was left for a longer time with her father. Yeah. So they're all in different levels of. They all suffered similar traumas, but because they're different people, it affected them differently. What they remember is different. Um, Their perspectives of it were different, and how they're dealing with it in the present as adults is also different as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And everyone remembers. It differently. Everyone can have a different recollection of what happened. It could be not as bad, bad, and that kind of creates, I'm sure, some disturbance between siblings because one might be like, "No, it was really bad," and maybe one would be like the other, another child would be like, "No, it really wasn't." Or you, you're gonna have a, a small discrepancy. But it seems like the ones that aren't talking either suffered the worst or just don't know how to feel about them. Yeah. Whereas, let's say, Ricky Jr., he already has established how he feels based on what he's witnessed. So it's kind of interesting how we have all these siblings, and each one of them are, are acting different about the monster. Yeah. You know?
1: I completely agree with that. And I think in these situations, um, you see two things happen within families. Either children that suffer extreme abuse, either they completely fend for themselves and you're on survival mode or you cling to each other. Yeah. So we see different things. So it turned out that the date that Marilyn went missing was pretty significant. If she didn't show up for work on September 12th, then most likely she had gone missing on September 11th, a date that was very important to the Kanan and children and Marilyn it was the day that their father and husband, Richard, disappeared. It seemed as if their mother went missing on the same day their father walked out on them 15 years later. An odd coincidence, don't you think?
2: I mean, it is. But I don't know. It's it's a little odd, though. Like, if it is the husband, ex-husband, why would he would he really hold on to a grudge for 15 years to come back to take her the same day he walked out? seems a little weird.
1: Well, it depends on how diabolical he is.
2: I think we're putting too much into him, you know? That's just how that's the feeling I'm getting like Okay. It's it's actually funny cuz it goes back to one of the other cases we did during a week where I felt like it it just it's too much we're giving this guy too much credit, I guess.
1: I know what you're saying. Like like this plan is so elaborate.
2: I just think that the dates that they fall on is just I don't know, I I feel like the coincidence part of it is weird.
1: Well, detectives never really feel like coincidences are a thing, so they do feel that somehow Richard's disappearance 15 years prior really has something to do with Marilyn's current disappearance, because it'd be too weird for them not to be connected. So the and children hated their father. They called him the monster, and that was what he truly was, a monster. And the day he left their house in 1988 had been one of the happiest days of their lives. The only time they knew peace. The following stories about what Marilyn and her children endured at the hands of Richard kananan Sr. are disgusting and call for a trigger warning. In discussing what happened to the family, I will touch upon again domestic violence, physical, emotional, and sexual child abuse. Richard kananan Sr., in the eyes of his children had never been good upon reflection later in life. And once they learned about domestic abuse, they said that their situation was unique. There was no good times or times when their abuser felt bad or apologized or went through periods of love bombing. It was just always bad. They and their mother always lived in a state of chaos. And there were bad days and worse days, but never anything good. And that had been the life they knew until the youngest child, Stacy, was 22 years old.
2: That's a long time. Yes.
1: Um, even currently, like when he disappeared in 1988, Cheryl was getting married, but they were keeping the marriage a secret from Richard because she knew that if her father knew she was getting married to another, to a man, you know not him, because there is sexual abuse involved, that he would kill her.
2: Wow. Okay.
1: So Richard, and what I think I'm going to do now to make everything easier, is I'm going to call Richard Sr., just Richard, so he's the father, and then call the son Ricky. Okay. Okay, so Richard's the father, Ricky's the son. So Richard didn't work. And even when the children were very young, he never really contributed financially to the family. He had only what the kids heard their parents refer to as a bad back. Because of his injury, he was on disability. In order to pay the bills and raise three kids, that meant that Marilyn had to work long hours as a secretary, which meant Richard was alone with the kids most of the day. Richard was an alcoholic, a violent alcoholic. When he was sitting in the living room and drinking his vodka, which was his alcohol of choice, all of his children knew to stay away from him. But even if they did, even if they walked on eggshells, got great grades and never got in trouble, inevitably the abuse would come. For the stories of abuse, the place to go to is the source, right? So a big source of this episode was a book that was later released by one of the Kanaan children. Um, I'll have it listed in the show notes and I highly recommend you read it. If you're a fan of um, if You Tell by Greg Olson, which we also covered, you know, that book in an earlier case, um, this book will be something that is is very similar to that. So if you found that book fascinating, this one is similar. And from it, I would like to read a quote that kind of, you know, stopped me in my tracks and made me go get a glass of wine to help me finish the rest of it. But I think it kind of encapsulates the feeling that the children had in that home. And it reads, remember when you were a child and you were afraid to go to bed at night without the nightlight on or begged for the door to be left open a crack. Remember how afraid you were of the monsters under your bed or the boogeyman looking through your window, waiting for you to fall asleep so he could break in and carry you away. Remember how badly you wanted your parents to come and rescue you. My father was that boogeyman. He was the monster under the bed in the bed. No mommy or daddy was going to come and rescue us because it was daddy who was causing the pain and terror, and mommy had been beaten into submission, too afraid to try and rescue us. Every night, every single night, we all turned in knowing that someone in the house may be attacked, dreading the sound of footsteps, stopping outside of our own door and turning the doorknob. The longer it had been since my father's last nocturnal visit to my room, the more the suspense had become unbearable because he was sure to come in eventually. Usually he would wait until the bleeding had stopped from the previous incident, but not always. And Richard was a boogeyman. At over six feet tall and over 300 pounds, he had a lot of control over his children and Marilyn. On many occasions, he would beat his wife in front of their children, especially if she ever tried to stand up for one of them and anything would set him off. Once, one of his violent attacks occurred because there had been lumps in his mashed potatoes. When his marriage first began with Marilyn, he would apologize to her afterwards, but eventually he stopped saying sorry. He continued to hit his wife, and when they had a son together, he began to hit his child. Upon reflection, one of Ricky's sisters is going to say, that she knows that Ricky had it really bad because he had been just under, well, like in his testimony, it's, it's interesting in the book. It says that Ricky is eight years older than Cheryl, but later during trial, when he testifies, he said he's, uh, he's uh, about 10 years older than her. So I'm not sure exactly how much older he is than Cheryl because there's conflicting things. I mean, I feel like, I believe him because he said it. I don't know, but he endured a lot of abuse before his siblings were born.
2: Okay, so which he- is why it's—I would imagine—he would be the one to stand up and say something, because he's this kid has spent you know his whole entire life not being able to say anything about it. You know what yeah. I mean, and not being able to kind of speak on it. So now that he has the opportunity, he's going to come out with everything. You know, Just about everything.
1: Right. And say, like, listen, I think this is dad. Yeah. Things changed completely during an incident where Richard had hit Marilyn and slammed her to the floor so hard that she lost consciousness. Panicked, Richard told his son, who was five or six at the time, he was supposed to spill orange juice on the floor around his mother. And when the police came... It was his job to tell them that he saw his mother slip on the orange
2: juice. Okay.
1: So Ricky did as he was told by his father because he didn't want to get hit either. And Marilyn came to at the hospital and the doctor explained that she had a concussion and that she should take it easy. But from this, Richard learned that he could get away with it, that his wife would wake up if this happened again. So the next time he would beat her until she lost consciousness, He just wouldn't call the ambulance because he knew it would be okay. So he did it again and again. And from that point on, Richard stomping on the head of his wife until she lost consciousness became something that happened on a regular basis in the Kanaanen household. It's really sad. Yeah. Now, I think we're going to just take a little bit of a break here to hear from a sponsor to kind of do a little bit of a palate cleanser. And we'll be back.
0: according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Okay, so let's get back into the show. Um, Where we left off, the beatings of Marilyn had gotten worse. Richard and Marilyn would have two more children, both daughters, And the beatings also happened regularly with the children, no matter what age they were. Richard was, through reading all of these accounts, a sadist. Marilyn hated that she had to work long hours and leave her children with Richard. But by this time, she was a battered woman who would do anything she could to keep her husband appeased so he wouldn't hurt them. It was difficult for her. She went into survival mode and would later hate herself for it. She worked all day and then would come home, and Richard would turn all of his anger towards her, and he would get extremely violent with her. Some examples of the horrific things that he would do would be beating his children with belts or any object close enough. Later on, when Ricky got older and ever tried to defend his sisters or stand up for his mother, Richard would handcuff Ricky to a tree outside of their house and sometimes he would leave them out he would leave him outside for days
2: i mean that's pretty crazy i just want to just ask a question actually <clears throat> at the time of um, the father's disappearance in 1988 89 yeah. you said um how old was the oldest it was it was the it was the son correct
1: yeah so the youngest when he disappeared the youngest was 22 so that was stacy and then Cheryl is 2 years older than her so Cheryl was 24 so then Ricky would probably be around 34
2: okay so how old was he in 1988
1: you mean how old was Richard R- no the son 34
2: he was 34 in
1: 1988
2: yes okay and then and then the next sibling was 10 years younger
1: yes and then 12 years is the next one
2: okay i just uh i'm building okay
1: I'm I'm letting the wheels turn over there. Yeah, no, I'm not
2: going to say anything yet. You keep telling your story.
1: I'm seeing smoke. hmm <laughs> So he would handcuff him to a tree, but, you know, they had to keep up appearances or social services would be called. So he would allow him to come in, get ready to go to school. And then once he returned home from school, he would have to go and be chained up in the backyard again. Richard... Also, sexually abused the children violently and sometimes at gunpoint. It had been said that there had been times also where Richard had allowed his friends to also um, rape his son. Okay. So, all of the children said that their father relished in their pain. He enjoyed hurting them and he did it every chance he could. He also psychologically tormented his children. One day when Cheryl was eight and Stacy was six, Richard took the girls out on a boat with him. This was when the family lived in Maine. He took them out on Lake Hebron and he left them on a floating dock and then drove the boat away. He just sat there far away from his little daughters who didn't know how to swim. He told them that if they wanted to come back, if they wanted to go home, they would have to swim to him because he wasn't coming to get them. For hours, the girl sat there, terrified, until it was dark outside. They knew that this was all bad. If they tried to swim that distance, they might die. And now it was freezing. The water was freezing at this point. They didn't think their father would help them if they were drowning. But they knew that if they didn't try and swim, that they were going to be in for it and he would beat them if they didn't try. So either way, you know, they were going to, they were either going to be hurt or they were going to die. And even as young children, all three of them said sometimes they'd wished for death when they were being attacked by their father.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, that specifically um, is psychological warfare. I mean, this is, uh, you know, this instance uh, is insane. The whole thing is like I, mind-blowing. Yeah,
1: it's bad. So as the sun went down and the lake grew colder, Richard sat in his boat drinking beers, watching his daughter suffer and laughing. Finally, the girls agreed that they would get in the water together. They would swim as best as they they could, and they vowed to keep each other afloat, and they did. They would later reflect that they could tell their father had been disappointed that they had survived the swim, and the rest of their lives they would think their father had tried to kill them that day. But unfortunately, it's not going to be the last time that he tried to kill his daughters. Another game that Richard liked to torture his children with was Russian roulette. They still didn't know to this day if there was ever a round in the gun. When they were younger, he would sit whoever it was, whoever he chose, on his lap. And he would put the gun to his head and pull the trigger. And then he would do the same to them. And after playing one round of this horrific game, he would tell them, You're lucky. And then he would make them leave. So as they got older, he would um, continue the sexual abuse. But at gunpoint, because as the children got older, it would be easier for them to fight, which is why he involved a gun. Uh, When they wouldn't even be in an argument or being punished at all, he would just kind of walk up like and he was usually really drunk. And he would kind of just pull a gun on them at any time while they were just sitting in the house. And he would pull the trigger, and would a bullet be there? But they would flinch every time.
2: Yeah. I To be honest, my personal opinion on that, just based on what he's all about at this point, I get the feeling that there was never a bullet in the gun. So, like, even when they were playing Rush Roulette, I guarantee you that there wasn't. It was just for the pure entertainment of their, their fear reaction. and their reaction to... You know, you know, like the anticipation of the, you know, of sh- shooting yourself. You know, I guarantee there was never a bullet. And when he would probably do that, uh, you know, hunt, hold them at gunpoint, guarantee there was never a bullet in the gun.
1: Yeah, I, I think that what their fear was 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 he going to be so drunk one day that he thought he cleared the gun and he didn't.
2: That's a possibility. But once again, every I think that this whole thing uh, that he's just playing up this psychological warfare game. And to instill like such fear and dominance over them, it's sickening, actually. It
1: is. So this next part is hard, but I always say it's important for victims to have their stories heard. In another excerpt from the book I mentioned before, and the one that's in our show notes, one of his children would write, uh, one of his daughters. His attacks were brutal and painful. He wasn't in it for the closeness, as inappropriate as that might be. This wasn't sex. It was just violence that just happened to involve body parts that are supposed to correspond with sex. He made it clear that he owned us kids. He owned our bodies. And whatever he wanted us to do, no matter how excruciating, it was to be tolerated and not argued with. Richard did irreversible damage to his children. The physical and psychological abuse had always been constant in their lives. However, the sexual abuse started with each child when they were around 10 years old. He would first use objects, telling the kids that he was getting them ready for what he would do to them when they were older. Their father was a sadist, and he was breaking the souls and psyches of his children and his wife. So how was he able to get away with this for so long? Because this is such extreme physical abuse that one attack on one of his children would be so brutal that nobody could come near them because they were healing. So the other kids would get it next. And you knew like you just were just waiting for your time in the cycle.
2: Right. I mean, it seems like he had it, you know, down to a science. Yeah. Um, To be able to inflict the most physical and mental pain and then be able to have them recover to just repeat it again.
1: Right. You know, And the way they were able to get away with this um, and not have social services get involved or anyone report anything happening with this family was that he just moved the family. The family constantly moved. They moved from town to town and state to state. They lived in apartment buildings. One time at one of the apartment buildings, a woman within the complex heard what was happening with the Canaan family through the walls, and offered Marilyn and her children safety. The next day, the family moved across the country to Maine.
2: That's pretty crazy. But what did he do for a living?
1: He didn't work. She was a secretary.
2: That's right. So she could
1: kind of pick up jobs wherever, and they were always moving. So the family lived in Munson, Maine, from 1969 to 1974. And side note, that's where the lake incident occurred
2: with okay. Cheryl
1: and Stacey. Got it. And that was how he got away with it. And we've seen this before with abusive parents. In other cases that we've kind of covered, the family is moved consistently, so they can't form any other bonds or relationships. And in a way, this is the ultimate form of isolation from their abuser.
2: Yeah, because it doesn't let anyone on the outside get close. No. And I guarantee you that he would be super paranoid that, that you know, like, that anybody would find out that what was going on, that he'd probably just move just on a, on a whim. Probably.
1: He would. He yeah. would. And that's why it's understandable that Cheryl didn't invite her father to her wedding because she thought she would die.
2: Yeah. Um, you know what? <laughs> it reminds me of that one case. I can't remember the name. I'm, I'm bad with that. I apologize. But you might. It's the same thing with that one family who adopted those children and then uh child Prot- protective services couldn't find them because they kept jumping. Do you remember that?
1: The Hart family?
2: It might have been the Hart family. Yeah, and then you know they, they you know they kept getting kids and then they kept moving and we were never they were never able to like
1: No, that's um, not the Hart family. I'm
2: trying to think what we did on oh, we'll get back to you on that. But I'm just I know we did a case where they kept moving, and that's why Child Protective Services could not do a yeah, follow-up that, check. Yeah, that
1: happened in a lot of cases yeah. that we did um, with abuse. Um, the other one was when the man claimed that he had the multiple personality syndrome. Oh, that's right. Yes. So, yeah. Well, it, there's a lot of them like that, and unfortunately. It, hap- it happens a lot with abusers yeah. because if you're not in one area long enough to be reported, then... It is what it is, you know?
2: Also, their jobs kind of make it possible to continue to relocate. He's getting checks because of disability. They go anywhere as long as you put an address on it. Right. (laughs) You know where you're going. And And, then she can just get a job wherever.
1: Right. And unfortunately, you know, the world in the 1960s and 1970s was a little different. and had a little bit of a different viewpoint on um, corporal punishment happening at home.
2: Yeah, I agree.
1: So when it was time for them to leave a location, Richard decided that he wanted to not only receive insurance money, but he also wanted to rid his burdens. And in the middle of the night, this is in Munson, Maine, he would tell. So 1974, Munson, Maine, they're leaving the house. Richard tells his wife and son to wait in the car. He then set the house that they lived in for five years with his two daughters inside, on fire.
2: Are you serious? Yes. What, to like, make it look legit?
1: To make it look like an insurance claim, and then he would also lose the two girls.
2: I mean, everything that we're hearing, I mean, that is what a monster is, but geez.
1: Ricky, who had not been in the car quite yet and was in his early teens, went to go help get the girls. He grabbed a ladder and brought it to the car window of the bedroom. He broke the window and climbed inside and brought both of his little sisters to safety. When they returned, Marilyn must have been trying to help the girls too, but Richard had stopped her and was beating her in the car. Later, Ricky too would get it for preventing his sister's deaths. From that point on until 1988, the abuse remained constant. And although by that point the children were grown, the youngest Stacy being 22, they were Not necessarily 100% out of the house. Ricky had gone on and gotten married, but he spent a lot of his time back at home. Cheryl also spent a lot of time at home, but Stacy was still home.
2: I think that's probably because they feel like it's their responsibility to look after each other. Like you said, you know, kind of like sink or swim. Like you want to, the only way to survive through the trauma is someone that has been through it, understands it. And obviously, that's your sibling. So they probably, even though they either live at home or, or, or don't, they still want to be around there because they still know that this crap's probably still going on with the youngest or you know whatever in, in any form of capacity is bad. So that's probably why they visited the house still.
1: No, that's completely right. And I agree with you because when he was a little bit younger, I mean, obviously, at this point, Ricky's like 34 years old. Well, 32 to 34, depending on what we're relying on for his age but ricky tried to go to college once and his father threatened him and said if you don't come home i'm going to kill your sisters but ricky also knew what that meant for him to return home yeah so he made a lot of sacrifices for his siblings just as they made a lot of sacrifices for him it's sad that the abuse was all they knew and that They had all formed this kind of like trauma bond as well, where they didn't want to leave each other or have one person left to feel the wrath of Richard. So they stayed. But later on, especially during the testimony of the trial that will occur, you find out with the sisters that it wasn't that way for the sisters.
2: You mean all the trauma that the uh, the son went through?
1: Well, them bonding together. Okay. Like, for instance... Cheryl as she got a little bit older she would and and I'm not this is not nothing negative towards her but this was her survival mode this was her defense mechanism she would cling on to kids that she met at school and some like ask them if she could go on vacation with them or go so like she'd be gone for weeks at a time with her friends leaving Stacy home
2: right and like we said earlier no and I don't think you're saying anything bad everyone is going to have a different like way of coping a different experience. So like, you know, it's it's not that she didn't do anything wrong. That was her way of escaping the tremendous amount of like abuse. You know?
1: Yeah. No, I totally agree. I just wanted to kind of explain the dynamic a little bit because it's a complicated one. As you can imagine, growing up in a house like this, sometimes self preservation is going to come forward.
2: Yeah. Um I, I wanna uh I wanna just tell you what i'm thinking here i always want to hear it at this point right now when you brought up the college thing it clicked for me when he went to college and and the the father threatened him to come back home because you know what i'll do if you don't yeah i feel like it's i mean listen this is layered here the trauma is layered but i also think what what is is the motive is layered because i have a feeling that you know when you give someone an ultimatum like that and you know what what it means I think that that builds so, so much resentment towards the father that I think that that could turn into something violent he's getting older he's been through that abuse and held down he's been the one without any power whatsoever to control the outcome of what happens to him and everyone gets to a breaking point and I feel like for for the father to do this for years and then all of a sudden he walks out and leaves his power and just forgets about it and leaves yeah to me is weird so what i'm trying to get at here is is it possible that the that the son now maybe has a motive now to why the father went missing and maybe he didn't leave
1: like you're saying like you think that Ricky killed Richard.
2: Yes. Because of all the trauma for years and years and years. And maybe the breaking point was the fact that when he went to college or whatever, maybe that was a breaking well, that point. Was
1: late. That was so that was later. So like,
2: oh. I mm. know what you're saying. Okay. I
1: I agree with you on your message. But just the timing is a little okay. off.
2: So maybe the timing's off, but I feel like something's, that would give motive.
1: Yeah, because the college thing happened when he was 18 years old. Yeah. Richard goes missing when he's 34.
2: No, I'm going to elaborate on a little so, bit more. So you're
1: saying even, I think this proves your point more, is yeah. that it wasn't just the college thing, it was and the years and years afterwards. Like right. he, I'm sure he was demeaning to his son. I'm sure he continued to be this, I mean, imagine you're a 34-year-old man and your father still hits you.
2: That's what I'm saying. Like, like, I don't think there's a power struggle there. He's never had power. Well, I mean, he's trying as he's getting older to be a man. He wants to be able to have that power, but he can't. You know, and, you know, and it's just something that's been you know held down, you know. But also, to elaborate on that even further now, the date of their disappearance now, both of them, it kind of rings a bell now, okay? What if the son, right? Mm-hmm is going even further on his, let's just call it a plot, to take out the mother now too. Because what even though the mother was abused herself, she also was a, a person... Like, I'm, I don't want to blame her, but she was a witness to all the... All the things, right? That also probably built resentment in him and other ch- and the other children. Like mom's supposed to protect us too. She's yeah. our mom, but she's done nothing. In their eyes, is what I'm saying, right? From as children, a
1: child's perspective, right. you would think, why wasn't my why mom wasn't my mom me?
2: here? So what does that do? That builds trauma. It builds layers of issues within the children. So now maybe the other two uh, girls didn't do anything. It didn't. Nothing happened. But maybe with the son, it did because he was older. And he was looking for his mom or someone to help him. Yeah. So the date makes sense now because <laughs> if my theory is right, that means that there's significance. So he took he took them both out on the same day. Just different time, like different years.
1: That would also be so diabolical.
2: It would be. But that's also why he would also be so forthcoming. Oh, the monster came back and did it. Right. You know what I'm saying? That's my theory, but okay. we'll see if it stands.
1: I like it. So you, this is your, you're marking it in the ground. This is your yeah. Thing.
2: I think that he's. I think the son is guilty of, of more both, you're of saying. both. Yes, and I think that. And I honestly think that like, it's almost like you. You don't even want to. If it's true, you don't, you almost don't want to be mad at him because look what he went through. But <laughs> right, if he did kill his parents, it's also terrible. Um,
1: it's complicated. It's complicated. Like yeah, you there's, said there's it's no very way. layered.
2: <laughs> it's no way you could be like, oh, you know they deserved it or anything like that, but right. you, you don't know how to look at it really. But anyway, that's my, well, I would say it, if Richard yeah.
1: got murdered, he deserved it.
2: Well, yeah, but you know what I'm saying? A life is still a life. I, I don't know. I don't know how to feel on the whole thing, but um, that's my theory for this.
1: Okay. All right. So on September 11th, 1988, like you said, everything changed. Richard had just left. When days went by without Richard returning to the home, the family of now four rejoiced. Had he left, were they really free of him? But unfortunately, after all the damage that he caused, the siblings and their mother, they would never really be ever free of Richard and Sr. During this time, they continued to live in Orlando, Florida. Everyone in the house thrived without the presence of Richard. Ricky was married still. I mean, eventually he gets divorced. Cheryl went on to marry, have three kids. Stacy lived around the block from her mother with her partner, Susan. And the couple worked at Disney. Isn't that just sounds like they're all so happy? That's cute. (laughs) And without Richard in their life, their life was like a Disney movie. It was finally, truly the happiest place on earth for them now, too. Once Richard left the family, nobody ever spoke about the abuse. They all wanted to leave it behind and have a fresh start. They weren't going to talk about it, which also build like creates a volcano. I would think it's just built up and pent up emotions and aggressions and frustrations and it bottles up, you know?
2: Yeah, I mean, how how can it not, right? I mean, I feel like this is. uh, I think everyone should be in counseling in this family, and you know, severe counseling onto how to handle everything, which is not a bad thing. It's a great thing, because look, even and you you just said it actually. I don't mean to repeat you, but you know, even though the father's missing, gone, left, whatever you want to call it, the ripple effect is that their lives mentally within their head is screwed up. You can't have a normal relationship. You can't, or I should say, you can't hold one. You're probably going to be a little bit distant and weird with your children. Like, literally, this spans an entire, like, generation of future children. Because now you just, like, because he did that, it corrupts the entire family tree. Now, those three kids from the one daughter probably will be like, why is mom acting this way? Why is she like this? Like, it causes so much, like, trauma and issues Throughout the years. It's
1: like aftershocks.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a ripple. It's, a, it's like a, a tsunami, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, it's bad.
1: All right. So before we just get into how fresh of a start the family was able to have, we're going to stop here and take a break to talk about our second sponsor of the show, Pros. There is no one-size-fits-all solution when it comes to hair care. A product that works wonders for curls might make straight hair limp and greasy. I know all about this because it has always been so difficult to find hair care products that work for my fine hair that I insist on being the brightest blonde possible. Trust me, I know I'm asking for the impossible when I need both lift and conditioning. But thanks to my personalized pros routine, I can honestly say that I have both and I've never been more in love with my hair. Prose makes custom hair care that's effective because it's personal. Using natural ingredients with proven results, Prose customizes every product in their routine from shampoo to supplements. First, Prose starts by asking you questions with their in-depth consultation. Pros asked me really unexpected things, like where I lived, where I worked out, and what my eating habits were. Next, Pros analyzed all my answers and determined what unique blend of ingredients should be in every product of my custom routine. Together, Pros got all my hair goals covered. I absolutely love the scalp mask, which has helped me tremendously with my hair's oil production, and the conditioner that also tones. Okay, let's get back to the show. So now that we've gone through the traumatic past of the Kananen family, you can imagine the shock that the detectives were in when they told them all about this. I mean, it's the worst abuse that they've ever heard
2: of. I'm sure.
1: (laughs) The detectives agreed with Ricky. This does not seem like a coincidence that 15 years to the day of her husband walking out on the family a husband with a sadistic mind, like a monster, that Marilyn disappeared. The two events have to be connected.
2: In some way, yeah.
1: The children each explained to the detectives that they had not heard as much as a peep from their father in 15 years, never wrote or called or stopped by ever again. And they were happy about it. But something made them feel as if he was somehow involved with all of this. Had he come back? Had he seen that Marilyn was thriving in her new life of being a single woman, enjoying the peace and quiet of an empty home, a woman who rejoiced in her role as a grandmother? Had Richard returned and hurt her because she was so happy? That was certainly what her children thought. Now, the reason why, It was plausible to them that Richard left, right? They they never reported him missing because Richard was, well, I think we all know this, a complete jerk. And he had many affairs on Marilyn. At one point, he even had his mistress living in the house with them. What? Yes. So they were, and he had two attempts. He tried to kill both of his daughters. So they were thinking like, he's moving on from the financial burden of this family and just going away with one of his mistresses.
2: I mean, that's true. I mean, that makes sense.
1: So detectives never, not even for one moment, doubted the claims of the now grown Canaan children. As they retold the story, the fear in their eyes and the physical visceral reactions were real. During questioning, Ricky had told the detectives that once Richard left, they were happy. But they were all damaged. They were just trying to hide it the best they could. And not talking about anything helped that. But they all thought about it. They thought about what their father had done to them. They thought about it every day. And although they went on to live their lives, they were holding their breaths, always waiting for him to come back. Richard was an evil game master. And they feared that this was his biggest game of all time. Letting them think they were free, and then returning,
2: I mean it, I mean it seems uh, it seems like the like a great final act, you know, like um,
1: well, like maybe he went off with one of his mistresses. It didn't work out or she died, and then he comes back home.
2: I mean, I guess there is the possibility of that, sure. I would just I you know, I don't know, I I don't know, maybe.
1: so, so it's so funny that although they were free, there was this darkness. Looming, always. They were always looking over their shoulder.
2: Well, it's because of the amount of brainwashing and the amount of physical and mental abuse that they, all these people suffered. I agree. That's And that's how he was able to do that.
1: So the police looked into the disappearance or whereabouts of Richard Cananen Sr. But it was true. It was as if he vanished. They considered the possibility that maybe he had changed his name or was living under the radar in a different state. While the police were conducting this investigation, the family, in conjunction with the Orange County Sheriff's Department, put out missing flyers of their mother and participated in search parties. Ricky had been able to find his mother's address book and called every number he could find in there to see if maybe somebody knew something. But he had no luck. Now, of course, as they're trying to look for Richard, they're going to place an inquiry into the Social Security Administration to see if the Social Security number had been used for anything, like trying to get an apartment, a credit card, open a bank account, and this could help them determine where he might be. It is while looking into this avenue that detectives found out something interesting. Richard's Social Security checks had been cashed for the past 15 years.
2: Okay, so maybe he's somewhere.
1: Well, the checks have all been sent to Orlando, to the couple's residence. What? So Marilyn had been cashing Richard's checks for the past 15 years. That's over $100,000. It's fraud. A felony.
2: Oh my god. (laughs) That's insane.
1: Did they just find the motive?
2: To be honest, I think, I don't know if it's motive, but.
1: Well, if Richard found out my ex-wife's been, or, you know, my ex-wife, he left her for 15 years, is cashing all my checks that I should have been getting.
2: I think what it shows is that if my theory, my long theory was right, then that would that would just prove that Marilyn had then uh, the acknowledgement that her husband is no longer with us.
1: Okay. I see what you're saying. You see what
2: here. I'm saying? That's if we go with my theory. If we don't go with my theory, then that is motive, I guess, for money. It's constant or cash it's just flow. Or
1: thinking, I deserve this after everything i put up with.
2: I mean, sure, but it is a crime.
1: Oh, it totally is. I mean, so, it's not... 15 years, $100,000 isn't that much money.
2: Uh, Yeah, but it's still a crime. You you're taking money and cashing it for yourself no i know it is
1: (laughs) i'm just saying it's not like she's making bang she's not she doesn't have to work you know well yeah so they wanted to bring in her children and ask them if they knew what had been going on the first person they call in and are able to talk to because his schedule is pretty light was ricky he admitted that he actually knew about the fraud His mother confessed to him earlier in the year that she had been cashing her father's checks, and recently she believed that the Social Security Administration was catching on to her, and they were requesting Richard's presence in court. Maybe she was nervous. She would get caught and go to jail. So could this have been motivation for her to run away? She was missing important items of clothing and personal effects. So had she just left because she was scared that she was going to have to go to jail because the Social Security Administration was asking questions?
2: I mean, I mean, I guess you know, if you owed the government a hundred thousand dollars, I mean, okay, would you leave? Would you just up and leave?
1: I'd be so upset. Or would you I
2: up and leave, or would you just get representation and pay? And if you had the payback arrears, you would just do it.
1: I would pay it back and right. apologize. Exactly.
2: <laughs> Right, and if you had, if you did, if it did come with jail time, then that's why you'd have representation to see what they can do about it. I don't think you that saying
1: to me just made me so nervous. I'm
2: sorry, but no, but do you get what I'm saying? Like, I don't know if that would make someone just up and leave f- for a hundred grand. Yeah, like I think that you would just get a lawyer, figure out how, uh, like, what the charges are, and then you know, uh, pay it back. Not to mention, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, a white collar crime. I mean, you go to jail and White Collar Crime, I mean, it's not as bad as, uh, no, I'm not even kidding, it's, that's just what they say. You'll just be with say. Martha Stewart. You'll just be with Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg or something, you know, like it won't be, you know, that bad.
1: All right, so if you are to commit a crime, make it federal. That's what they say. All right. Uh, we, don't be, condone, we, we don't condone we do this. not condone that and honestly
2: we are clean <laughs> i'm just saying that you know that i think w-
1: we paid extra taxes this probably year. did like i think i screwed up our taxes a little bit i think you did i think I, I think we paid too much that's all right that's fine Sorry.
2: we'll deal with it later um anyway we're but, letting
1: our real life bleed into this <laughs> yeah
2: but i really don't think that um that would give cause to just up and leave yeah if anything at that point now it looks staged to me Okay. Because I don't think that that would justify just running away and leaving your kids when everything looked to be normal.
1: Right. Like, it's $100,000 isn't... Yes, it's a lot of money, but Marilyn did have a lot of money in the bank at the same time. If she wanted to, she could have paid it outright.
2: Yeah, so I So I don't why think, would that be why would Why run?
1: Because she could go to
2: jail. But we really don't know. You know, like, I, I don't know. We could go back and forth, but... You know, you might get probation. You might have to just pay it back. Maybe you'll have probation, a fine, and then you have to pay it back. It might not necessarily give you jail time is what I'm trying to say. So there's no need to run. I understand. So, yeah.
1: So detectives were upset that Ricky had known this and not disclosed it. But he told them that he would never hurt his mother. And if she was going to return home... He didn't want her to return home to felony charges because he opened his mouth. You know, like his mom's missing. He's not going to say, oh, by the way, she committed a felony. (laughs) He's (laughs) going to not tell the police that. So during this meeting, another thing they learned from Ricky was the fact that his mother's father had just passed away. So his grandfather. And from that, she had inherited around two hundred and fifty thousand
2: dollars. It's a pretty uh, decent amount of money. Oh, yeah.
1: But then I think you're right. That shows that, you know, maybe the $100,000 thing wouldn't really be a big deal because if she had to, she could have just paid it in full.
2: She could have paid it. She could have paid for a lawyer. She could have, you know, so many things. Because, I mean, they're not going to let you get away with just paying it back. Right. But she had the money, that means.
1: Now, the odd thing was, when the detectives went to the Social Security Administration, they claimed that they had never sent any letter of this sort. They actually never suspected any fraud, and they were continuing to send the checks. But now that they knew there was fraud, they stopped sending the checks. So either Marilyn was lying to Ricky or Ricky's lying to the police.
2: Yeah. Also, the reason, yeah, I mean, because they need a death, a death certificate to stop Social Security payment. Pretty sure. You know, and then they freeze all your assets with a certificate. Well, of death. no, they
1: don't necessarily. St- well, the Social Security disability checks they would stop, but the actual Social Security checks they would continue to send to a spouse.
2: Okay. Well, yes. Yeah, true, true. Because mm-hmm. they've been married. Yeah.
1: Right. But remember, Ricky told the police that Marilyn had gotten a letter saying they wanted to, they were requesting the presence of Richard at a Social Security Administration office. And she was getting nervous because obviously he's not there. So either Marilyn was lying to her son or her son's lying to the police. So the police really at this point, still going on the theory that Marilyn was just missing, had seen this before. Someone leaves, but they need access to their money. So if they put a freeze on the accounts, on all of Marilyn's accounts, it might force her to surface. So they choose to go this route and they want to freeze all of Maryland's bank accounts, but it's going to take a long time for a judge to approve this. Now, another side note here is the transactions that were being made from Maryland's bank account because there were still transactions being made from her bank account. They were quite large, larger than any transactions that Maryland had ever made before. Okay. In the past. And, you know, Marilyn was a frugal woman. She managed to save a nice nest egg for herself. She also inherited all of that money. And now all of a sudden her money is leaving her account in large quantities. So it's not that hard to follow the money. The money was being taken out of Marilyn's account and put into two companies, Emerald Electric and Green Acres.
2: Okay. So he's or someone... Well, it's his company, isn't it? It's both Son? of
1: his companies, okay, and so... but don't forget the other company, the two sisters are also involved in.
2: Okay, so now it's like, are they funneling money from there into those accounts? Yeah. Weird. Um, are it's... those maybe maybe because are those businesses struggling, or if he, or he or does he think maybe by putting it in the business he's hiding it?
1: Well, I mean, don't forget we're not just talking about Ricky here. I mean, there's three, two other siblings.
2: I mean, that's true. Okay. Well, still, the, still, my question still stands: Could they be trying to hide it through their companies? Maybe. Or, yeah, like what, like what's going on? Are they like, are well, the businesses dying, and they need to keep it afloat by putting their mother's money in it? Well,
1: these, uh, this is the company that was owned by Ricky, Stacy, and Charles' husband. Upon further investigation, it was made clear that Ricky, who applied for a second license. And when he did, he conveniently left out the junior in his name. So basically, it was like his name was Richard Cananan, the same name as his father's would have been on a license. So that's how he was able to pull from the joint bank accounts with his mother using his father's name.
2: That's weird.
1: And he was then putting that money into the businesses and issuing himself and Stacy paychecks.
2: It's almost like he's trying to be his dad to financially benefit
1: well he has to have if he's pulling from a joint account he needs that name
2: right but removing the junior is a little red flaggy to me because why are you doing that
1: because if he if the junior is on his license then he can't pull it then he's not
2: right he's not that person that person right so he's not
1: trying to steal his father's identity he's just trying to be able to access the money in the joint
2: accounts got it okay you know what I'm saying? No, no, you cleared that up for me. That's good. No.
1: I'm happy to do that.
2: No, no, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: <laughs> um, But later on, it would come out that he didn't even necessarily have to do that. And that might have been something the police assumed he was doing. Okay, Because he really is power of attorney over his mother. Got it. So he has access to her bank accounts anyway. So maybe he just didn't want the junior because... He knew what happened to his dad. Maybe. Are you a junior anymore? If the senior doesn't exist.
2: I don't, I think the way it works because my dad my okay, I think the way it works is that if there's a senior and then a junior and then the senior dies, the junior becomes the senior. I don't think so. I don't know. No. You don't think so? Am I wrong?
1: You can only be a senior if there's a junior. Oh, the complicated world. Oh,
2: damn, I know. Uh, okay. Well, of naming
1: re- your children after yourself. Well, regard
2: regardless. Like in my family, the only thing that separates me from my dad and my grandfather is my middle name, right, which so means not the same. Right, exactly. But if my if, if it was the same as my dad and my grandfather, then I would be the, the third.
1: You know in the South what they call people that are the third? What is it? They call them Trey or Trip. Trey? <laughs> or trip.
2: Okay, well, I would be Trey Trip or June uh, or the third because Nobody
1: would call you the third.
2: I would make you call me the third. <laughs>
1: weird.
2: I'm just kidding. And I'm how, just kidding.
1: And how many problems have we had because your name is so similar to your dad's?
2: Um, sometimes not not like that big cuz everything's separated by social security number, but
1: I know but it always becomes an issue. Well, it's
2: funny. Like like at my place of work, it's like always like a funny thing. They're like, "Oh, hello John." And I'm like, "No, this is the 30-year-old John, not the 59-year-old John." <laughs> cuz we have the same name, so it's it's difficult.
1: If we have a son naming them John,
2: that'd be cool. But if I do that, do I make him a junior, or do I change it up again?
1: You got a lot of things to think about, buddy.
2: That's okay. You know, I will. I will. We will discuss whether or not we continue the John legacy or we do not. Okay. We'll have to think about that.
1: I think it's so hard because I call you Johnny. What am I going to call the kid? johnny jr <laughs> no i don't want to call my son johnny jr <laughs> i'm just
2: Jesus. kidding i'm okay kidding.
1: okay let's move on let's yes. move on the audience is annoyed with us i feel okay okay i feel the tension they're like keep going with this story so ricky and stacy are getting paychecks from the money that is being pulled out of their mother's bank account ricky is the one who is physically doing this we are unaware of how aware stacy is of what is happening But she's living with Ricky, so I feel like there is some culpability here. The two were definitely spending a lot of money. Stacy bought a new car and Ricky was seen at a bar several times buying a lot of drinks for people, showing off the new things he had bought. And when people asked him where he had gotten all this money from, he told them that he had won the lottery. This was definitely suspicious, and it only made the detectives want to freeze the bank accounts more than ever, which a judge finally allowed them to do. And the detectives got the results they hoped for. The bank was told to contact the police if anyone contacted them regarding the frozen accounts. And a few days into the freeze, they did. The bank called to tell the detectives that a female called them and stated that her name was Marilyn Kananen. The woman inquired as to why the accounts were frozen. The bank provided the detectives with the number that was used to call them, and it turned out that it was Stacy's cell phone.
2: Whoa. Okay. Yeah, this is not good.
1: No, and the questionable behavior did not stop there. When detectives went to speak to Ricky and Stacy about the bank accounts, they pulled up to their house and the two were having a yard sale with Marilyn's things. They were selling their missing mother's belongings. While the detectives were questioning them about what they were doing, a family drama unfolded before their eyes. Cheryl arrived. She was furious with her siblings. How could you do this, she asked. Mom is coming back. And Ricky was telling her that he didn't think she was coming back. So they were selling everything. And it was at this point that Cheryl turned on her siblings and began to believe that maybe something suspicious was happening here. However, outwardly, she wasn't accusatory yet. So the police questioned both Ricky and Stacy regarding the bank accounts and their mother's disappearance one more time. Ricky stuck to his story about his mother and his father. He thought that his father had come back and that maybe his mother had run away because she was nervous about the Social Security Administration finding her. During the interview, Ricky was unhelpful and sarcastic with them. Detectives also knew he had given differing versions of the story that he was telling them to his neighbors and other family members. Stacy told detectives the same story her brother had, and she stated that they were just in need of some money because of all the business dealings were kind of tied together. And during these conversations, the detectives learned that technically, Ricky had not done anything wrong because Marilyn had made her son power of attorney. He really had the right to it all. He could handle his mother's bank accounts, sign checks, sell her property, and manage her assets. Because there were suspects, but no evidence or leads, the investigation into the disappearance of Marilyn Kinnanen went nowhere for three months. And I say three months because it was around this time that Cheryl's son had a troubling interaction with his uncle Ricky. While the two were together, Ricky had made comments to his 12-year-old nephew, Daniel, that his mother, Cheryl, Ricky's sister, better watch out and stop accusing him of things. Tell your mom to stop snooping around my business, he said. He went on to tell Daniel that he had killed his father, And buried him under the garage. And he could do it again. And if he told anyone what he had just told him, he would kill him too.
2: Is that a mission? Of sinister murder?
1: (laughs) Oh my god. Maybe. I
2: mean, it could be, right?
1: Well, it's very specific.
2: It is. It's time to check the garage.
1: It is time to check the garage. So now, you just told a 12-year-old that you murdered someone. And you might murder their mother or them.
2: If they say anything. If
1: they say anything. So what do they do?
2: They say something. They say
1: something. (laughs) So um, Daniel is going to tell his mother what his uncle said. Now, after calming her son down, Cheryl called the detectives to let them know what her brother had said. After everything with the bank accounts, the yard sale, the changing of stories, the detectives had always suspected Ricky. So they wanted to talk to him after this confession that he made to his nephew. They didn't want him to be suspicious, so they asked him to come in and talk to them about some updates they said they had on his mother's case. They told him that they had made some progress on the investigation. Once he got into the room, they confronted him about what he had said to his nephew. Ricky, of course, denied saying this. Instead, he said that this was all part of an incident that, That went back way before his mother had gone missing. He said that Daniel had been telling the family, meaning him, Stacy, and his mother, Marilyn, that Cheryl had not been treating him right and that she had a very bad temper. Reminiscent of their father. Okay. So immediately Ricky, Stacy, and Marilyn um, came to the child's defense and told Cheryl that if she didn't treat her son right, that he would come live with Marilyn. Cheryl reacted very negatively to this and wrote them all a very long letter, basically telling them to butt out of her life. Ricky said that he had made an off-handed comment to the boy. I'll kill her if she hurts you. Something along those lines. However, I don't know if I completely believe, I think I believe the circumstances of what Ricky is saying and that maybe this incident happened with Cheryl and everybody else, but it's a very specific thing to say about the murder of his father and where, where he's buried. It is. So the police told him that all they had to do was get some cadaver dogs out to the property, and they would know right away if there was a body there under the garage. But Ricky shrugged the whole thing off and told them that they could do whatever they wanted. Next, they talked to Stacy. They confronted her about the phone call made to the bank, about the frozen accounts. And she denied doing it, but the police quickly retorted with this simple, do you know how easy it was for us to find out the call came from your phone? But they did not give Stacy time to even react. They just left the room. Detectives were satisfied at this point with the level of agitation they had gotten from both of them, so they placed the siblings in the same room together. And it was clear they were panicking. But Ricky was trying to keep Stacy calm. She kept saying to him, they're asking me questions about mom and dad. Why? And Ricky just kept repeating that she didn't have to worry about anything. Eventually, both Ricky and Stacy are going to be released by the police because truly there's no evidence to hold them. It's really just suspicions that they have and some comments that Ricky made to his 12 year old nephew. However, they still had their suspicions. So they were given permission to tail the siblings. Because the pressure was now on and Ricky had given a location for where he supposedly buried a body, they thought that maybe what Ricky and Stacy might do next was go to the house and move the
2: body. I mean, that's smart for them to think that.
1: Yeah, or go to the body wherever it was and move it. Yeah. So that's why they're tailing them. But instead of going directly to the house... The two head to a storage facility, and at the time, um, Ricky Kinnanen owned three storage units, but um, in one of the larger units, they open the door, Ricky drives in, and the door to the storage unit is closed behind them. So the officers that were tasked with tailing them were baffled with this one, but they decided to wait it out and see how long they would be inside. As the minutes ticked away, they began to wonder what was happening. Was there another body in there? Maybe evidence? Were they destroying it? So finally, after 30 minutes pass, the officers decide that it would be wise to check on the brother and sister. These types of storage units only lock from the outside, so the officers were able to lift the garage-style door up easily. As they opened the door, the smell of car admissions hit them like a brick wall. For a split second, the officers looked at each other in recognition of what was happening. They were trying to kill themselves through carbon monoxide poisoning and they had already been in the car for 30 minutes at this point. So the officers sprung into action and called for an ambulance. They removed the bodies from the car and brought them outside and began performing CPR. Both Ricky and Stacy were resuscitated.
2: Oh my God! So this this kind of it seems now that they have some involvement in in a in a bad way here to try to kill yourself, you know you know in your car try you know, uh, monoxide poisoning. Yeah, you have to be involved in something here.
1: Yeah, there has to be some feelings of guilt to do something like that. So they were rushed to the hospital for medical treatment, and a lot of police questioning once they're okay. The fact that this was a suicide attempt was backed up by the fact that both of them had written and left suicide notes. The most incriminating part of Stacy's note, which she left to her partner Susan Cowan, was that she had something to do with mom and dad's disappearance. However, she did not confess to being involved in any murders whatsoever. But Ricky's note was very revealing. In it, he stated that he was angry with his mother He claimed that he was upset because she was going to keep all of her father's inheritance and not share it with her children. And this made him upset because he was the reason she was able to live her life and be happy for 15 years because he had been the one to kill Richard.
2: Okay, wow. This is eye-opening.
1: Yes. He said his father, Richard, in the letter was a monster and he deserved it. And then he went on to say that uh, beneath the cement in the garage, that's where his father's body was and that his mother's body is under the rock garden at Stacy's house.
2: So he did kill both of them and Stacy had involvement in covering it up. And That's what it looks like. Maybe. Yeah.
1: So warrants were obtained to search both properties and in a shallow grave beneath the cement of the garage, they found the body of Richard Kananan. And in a five foot deep grave in Stacy's Rock Garden, remember all the landscaping that was being done? Yeah. They found the body of Marilyn Kananan. Once he was able to talk to them, the detectives asked Ricky about his confession. Why did you do it? You don't know what he did to us, was all he said. And she was there for it all, too. They decided that they should talk to Stacy because Ricky was not in the talking mood. She told them that she had only found out that Ricky had killed their parents when she was in the car with him in the storage facility. It's hard because, out of grief and sadness and trauma, did the siblings just decide to end their lives there?
2: Yeah. I mean, if you think about it,
1: it doesn't necessarily implicate Stacy. It could just be a reaction that she had. Maybe. The years would pass from when Ricky made his confession to when he would see a courtroom. This was because he faced a lot of competency hearings and was in and out of mental facilities. He had at one point been deemed incompetent and unable to stand trial. However, in 2007, he was lucid again and he wanted to enter a guilty plea Of second-degree murder to the murder of um, his mother. So this is what he said. He said to the police that when he murdered his father in September of 1988, his father had been pointing a shotgun at him, as he often did, and usually there was no round. But this time when he pulled the trigger, there had been. But luckily, Richard had been so drunk that he missed his son. Imagine like you're thirty four years old, and your father's still pointing guns at you and pulling the trigger and torturing you. yeah having enough of his father and everything he had done to him and his family that night, he got the same shotgun and shot his father while he was sleeping. He put his father's body in a freezer in the garage, where it stayed for months until being buried in the garage over cement in 1989. When it came to his mother, he said he had gone over to visit her on the anniversary of him killing his father and what she thought was his disappearance. He said he every year kind of went over to see her on that day. He said that she had said something that set him off. She said, I miss him.
2: Okay. Yeah. Wow.
1: And Ricky snapped. He thought, you miss the man that brutally beat you and your three kids for decades. The man who raped your son and daughters in your home. The man who let his friends rape your son. The man who made you sleep outside in the chicken coop when you spoke too loudly to him. The man who beat you unconscious, kicking you in the head. And Ricky thought about all of the times that he or one of his sisters took beatings for their mother or while he was... Beating their mother, they distracted him and drew Richard's anger towards them to defend their mother, to save her life, the woman that was supposed to be protecting them. They'd always protected her, and now she missed him.
2: That would be one hell of a trigger, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Ricky snapped. He had a taser on him at the time. For what, I don't know. We'll get to that in a second. And he tased his mother and eventually strangled her to death. He wow. strangled his mother. He brought her body to his sister's house where he was living with her. And in the middle of the night, he buried her body in the rock garden that they had just put in. So why did he have the taser? Was this planned? Was he truly triggered um, Had he always been triggered? Was this also about the money that he wasn't getting? Did he feel entitled to some of that? It might be a combination of it all. It was also presented at trial that Ricky had been writing a book. The book was called The Scales of Justice, and it was clear that the protagonist was himself. There was a story about a little boy who watched his father knock his mother out, and then the father made the son spilled the juice and tell the police the mother slipped. The same thing that had happened to him. In the book, he even had the main character strangle someone, uh, which he described the strangling in extreme detail. It seemed to be a recounting of his mother's murder.
2: 100%.
1: So you did it 100 I did it 100%. <laughs> just happened. So Ricky was sentenced to 30 years in prison. But before he was taken away, he said he wanted to talk to
2: detectives. Uh, okay.
1: I didn't do it alone.
2: Oh, okay.
1: And note, this confession will not change the fact that he pled guilty to um, second degree murder and would get the 30 year sentence. So this did not lessen his time. He said, I wasn't alone in the murder of my mother or the killing of my father. My sis, my sister, Stacy, killed my father and knew that I killed Our mother, she was there with me that night, and she helped bury the body.
2: Well, I mean, I kind of figured that she had some involvement.
1: Well, hold on.
2: Oh, okay.
1: He is claiming that one day in September, he went to the house, and my sister had my father dead in the garage rolled up in sheets. So he wasn't the one to kill Richard. But he had just confessed that he was, and he did it because he fired the shot at him.
2: Can I tell you something? This is what that sounds like. Remember in the past when they were kids, he would try to protect them and kind of take the heat, kind of? Mm-hmm. You know, like in the same way they did that to the mom where the mom was being abused and they kind of, you know, took the heat off of her? I feel like that's what's happening here. He's kind of flip-flopping. He went from, you know, saying that, you know, he's the one that did it to take the heat off of her, but then maybe once he realized how long he was in jail for... He maybe kind of recanted that.
1: Yeah, but he would get no benefit of saying my sister did it except to punish her.
2: Maybe that's what he wanted to do. Uh, It's hard to say. Right.
1: And, you know, like I just said, what is the purpose of this? If he was trying to protect his sister, why was he suddenly turning on her? He just literally ruined his sister's life. Um, And maybe the motive for doing that was before... He was going to take the plea. Stacy was going to testify in the trial against him and was going to confess um, what Ricky had confessed to her in the car before he convinced her to kill him herself with him.
2: Oh, so then that explains everything. All that explains the reasoning for why he would throw under the bus. Yeah. After he first, you know, said that she yeah, had to no involvement. Yeah, but
1: the question is, did did she kill the father?
2: I think it's safe to say in this case between the mother's disappearance and death the father's disappearance and death the money um everything i think everyone kind of knew a little something of everything like like i think the mother knew about the father being dead and you know at least dead who i don't know you know i think she knew something they all knew a little bit of everything but you know cuz it just it it doesn't make sense that Oh, what? Everyone's blind to everything that's going on in a house where everyone I lives understand. together? I understand. So I think that that is what is going on here. I think everyone had a little bit of acknowledgement.
1: Well, I think that everybody l- grew up living in that house, and it's better to look the other way at whatever's happening. Yeah. That's how they grew up. So the detective that had been working the case from the beginning could not ignore the accusation. The investigation into Stacy began investigators and prosecutors felt that they had what they needed to convict her at the time stacy had told her partner susan that she could no longer live at the house they were in knowing that her mother had been buried in the backyard nor could she stay in orlando where she had memories of her mother there was no reason for her even her own sister thought she was guilty so why would she stay here because cheryl very quickly turned on stacy So they moved where Susan's family was. During this time, Susan's parents were going through a divorce. They had owned a Gulf Coast resort and also a nudist retreat. And this nudist retreat was actually a very large community in Pasco County. There's about 100 homes and 80 RVs. So that's where they decided to go to just kind of escape it all. And that is where Orange County police drove to to arrest her. Now, really, the only evidence they had against Stacy was uh, one little part of an entire suicide letter and the fact that she had, with her brother, spent her mother's money and the fact that she called the bank to ask about the frozen accounts. That's the only evidence they have against Stacey and Ricky's word.
2: Right, but I feel like it would, I mean, it kind of gives you an insight into, like, how much she might have known. I mean, if she's pretending to be her mother, when she knows her mother's dead.
1: But is she doing so because her brother's making her do it?
2: I mean, I think that's that's hard, right? Because I think they all have suffered trauma where they're very easily manipulated. manipulated. Jinx. <laughs> Jinx. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I know what you're saying. It's hard. I, and like I said earlier, lots of layers here. I think they all are suffering from damage from their father and, I, and that could leak out to what maybe what the brother's doing to the sister. I don't know.
1: No, I agree. So when they arrested Stacy for the murder of her mother at the nudist retreat, the media went wild. and that might be one of the reasons why court TV took on the case. When Stacy went to trial for the murders, court TV covered the entire case. And if you are interested in watching the case, I have the link to the entire court case in the show notes. But just know it is a lot of hours. But I am on my jam of watching trials because, of course, I'm watching the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. And then I was watching this trial in between it. So I am basically a lawyer at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the trial on the website has been explained in a way that I think perfectly summarizes it. A bizarre family murder, 15 years apart, as 41-year-old Stacy Cananan faces a life sentence for allegedly helping her brother kill their mother and bury her remains under a rock garden at their home in 2003. The prosecution claims the siblings were after the 250,000 family insurance payout. The defense blames Stacy's brother Richard who pleaded and will testify against his sister in exchange for a 30-year prison sentence. However, the jury will not know the siblings were also implicated in the 1998 murder of their father, whose remains were also found buried under the garage of their mother's home. Holy case court summary. It's crazy. Yeah. So the trial is very interesting one and very emotional. Uh, During the trial, Cheryl testifies, as did her husband and son. From Cheryl, we learn her stories of abuse and the fact that the family had lived in California, Maine, Minnesota, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Florida to hide the abuse. And at one point, Richard has had his mistress living in the house with the kids in Maryland. Cheryl's testimony was very emotional. When shown a jacket that her mother once owned... Her and Stacy from the defendant's table started sobbing, and the pain that these women were going through at the death of their mother was palpable. It really, truly was, and you almost feel like I don't think she had any involvement in the death of her mother throughout her entire reactions in the court case. Real, true, genuine emotions were seen in this courtroom Hmm. and um now this is just my opinion and my perception of watching this court case but i found that cheryl yes was very upset at the death of her mother um but she was very resentful towards her sister stacy she felt as if stacy didn't suffer any abuse at the hands of their father, which is completely untrue. Cheryl left for weeks at a time. Um, Cheryl's in a bit of denial about the abuse that took, home, took place in the home. I think that's her defect, defense mechanism and to not believe that anything happened to anybody else. Richard also isolated his children in trying to make them hate each other. They would He would tell Cheryl... You're not my daughter. Stacy's my only biological daughter. And like he was draw- like creating a wedge between the siblings. So they didn't even have each other, basically. And, you know, it's very unfortunate. Richard also testified that she was involved. He, during his testimony, said that Stacy was there and she helped him murder their mother, that she was holding the mother down while he was like strangling her. And that she had also helped him bury her body. Um, Richard was claiming that because at the time he was 400 pounds, he wouldn't have been able to do everything by himself. But she still could have done it by himself. If he wanted to. Marilyn was a very small woman. In the end, the jury found that there was not enough evidence against Stacy. Well, wow. She had nothing to do with the murders or the burial of the body. When the verdict was read, her and Susan both cried. She hugged her lawyer and was visibly relieved while her sister Cheryl sat stone-faced in the gallery. She still believed she was involved. Um, even the sheriffs that were kind of there to take the ankle monitor off of Stacy or whatever, they were next to Susan in the gallery supporting her. Like, I I truly believe that many people did not think that Stacy was involved. And in looking at her, she is this traumatized, abused woman. I mean, it's... If you saw the trial, you would agree with the, the not guilty verdict. Yeah. If you saw it in its entirety. I think the jury made the right call there. Um, So, after Stacy had been found not guilty, she began seeking therapy. And she was the one who wrote the book that I've been referencing in the show. I I felt like if I said that it was her, it would have given away I see. what happened. So uh, she now works as a victim's advocate. And of course, the book and the show notes, I mean, the book and the trial footage will all be in the show notes. And I was just thinking, you know, watching the trial, how much of a shame it is that the siblings all survived this war together, but couldn't even rejoice in the survival because of the murder of their mother and the trauma that had been had to them all. Like they could never celebrate what they had made it through because of the varying stages of denial that they were all in and the aggression that they had towards each other and their mother also. It seemed that Ricky was very aggressive towards his mother, but the daughters were not. But something stuck with me in the book. As I was reading about, you know, the abuse, Ricky would try to intervene sometimes with the abuse his sisters took, but he learned not to do so because of the punishments he received. And Stacy explained that it was every man for themselves. For example, when Cheryl would spend weeks at a friend's house and leave her with their father... Or when Ricky left to get married or it's just kind of like you just needed to survive and then leave. And it seemed like that defense mechanism, that survival strategy lasted into adulthood for them all. So in a way, what Ricky said on the phone to Cheryl that day when Marilyn first went missing was true. The monster's back. The same monster was back, but just in a different form. Yeah. It took the form of Ricky. But that monster made him a monster.
2: It's almost like the seed has been planted. Even though Ricky probably wasn't a a monster, it was a seed that was planted and cultivated. He became essentially his father because of all the abuse and the anger and the resentment that followed. Yeah. So that is why we have what we have here now. Because they're
1: all products of their environment. Exactly.
2: And it's That was the seed that was planted in each one of them.
1: But they all reacted differently to it. And even visually, you could see it during the trial where Ricky internalizes it and explodes like a volcano. And you get this massive violence. He's killed both of his parents. Cheryl is in complete denial. And Stacy is just shut down, ultimate victim, and is easily manipulated by all those around her. Yeah. Yeah. It's really it's just yeah. so sad that they grew up in that house and this is the result of it's all the father's doing.
2: One hundred percent. I mean that's where it's it comes from the
1: catalyst from. for it all.
2: Yeah. Were oh. were you uh were you mad at me that I was kind of getting there a little bit?
1: No, you got there. You friggin' figured it out. I was sort so of
2: ab- Well the particulars, no. Yeah. But I was like,
1: Okay, now I have to try to convince him the whole time <laughs> that like Ricky didn't do it. <laughs>
0: I'm sorry
2: you know you know what though that that really um, it was very interesting this case was great by the way good job Kay thanks I I really liked it a lot I don't know for some reason this reminded me like almost like a lifetime movie that my mom would make me watch with her and I figured it out that way
1: that's a rite of passage you have to do that yeah it's like a lifetime (laughs)
2: movie you know
1: Okay, so that concludes this episode. If you got through it to the end, you are a super true crime listener because it's, it was a rough one. And before we go, we just want to thank our new supporters on Patreon. Karen Burnett, Kel, Jessica Hayes, Mandy, Sue Lewis, Nathan, Guam Missy, Christopher Bell, Heather Trapp, Danielle Rose, Chan Turn, Nate Rugemer, Nicole Howell, Casey Jablonski, Amanda Walsh, Karina Murphy, Mariah Bird, Kathy Gerhard, Jerry Sokol, Tanya Miller, Sequoia Jay, Jen Miller, Savannah Franklin, Angel Sears DeBono, Caroline Burke, Carnal Flower, Marina Ledesma, April Brown, Brent and Rachel Mullins, Jennifer Anderson, Nicole Alford, Michelle Rosenberg, Corinne Congdon, Blake Brugman, Maria Solis, Katarine Schmid, Chelsea Gents, Brianna Hill, Brittany Meyer, Paula Kinanen, which is so similar to the name of the case that we just did. It's spelled differently, but is like. Maybe I pronounced it wrong, Paula. You tell me. <laughs> Grace, and then Tanya Miller up to her pledge. So thank you, Tanya. Zara Schwami and Nicole Schmidt. Thank you guys so much for joining Patreon, and we hope you're enjoying all of those new episodes. And if you want to join Patreon and get two bonus episodes of True Crime Couple a month, you can do so at patreon.com slash Couple. All right, guys. Until next time, don't park next to Vance.